Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Saima. And I'm your host, Ruark. And hi, panel. Hello. Hello. Joining us today, we have Siobhan. Hey, everybody. Axel. Hello. And David, not Greg. Live long and prospers. So welcome back after a quite a quite a pause over the, the holiday season, but we are back to complete our season of The Sandman um, with the bonus episode. So this was episode 11 that was um, surprisingly dropped. And uh, I don't know about you all, but I stopped everything I was doing, jumped onto Netflix <laughs> and yeah, just watched it. <laughs> so it's in two parts. Um, we've got two standalone issues in this episode dream of a thousand cats and calliope and maybe we could start with dream of a thousand cats um first thoughts panel it's about cats i love it (laughs) (laughs) that sums it up (laughs) not being a fan of the comic having the different medium threw me a little bit Mm. and and not understanding oh, the animation yeah first the animation and then also like how does this tie in because it took quite a while into the story before you even get a hint of dream and and dreams part in the story it has sandman attached to it so it must actually tie in somewhere but wait wait where is it i i don't get it yet i mean nobody says that humans are the only people that dream i know my dogs dream yeah i'm sure and it makes sense by the end i was just confused at first which again is yeah like in the i think reading the comic it worked much the same way i think that was the first one that was like completely outside of storyline including you know the bit about like cats used to rule the universe and eat people um Well, you know they would, right? <laughs> yeah. And actually, I have a cat on either side of me right now that are both asleep. Um, <laughs> oh, so we're, we're, we're talking about their dreams as we record. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think my cat would, um, she would keep me as a pet. She wouldn't eat me. Mine too. Um, That's what you think. My cat would eat me. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. <laughs> if that's the right word, the number of celebrities in this episode. And I was just thinking, you know, when you're you're Neil Gaiman, these are your friends, you know, you just give them a call and say, hey, do you fancy doing some voice work for this episode that I'm doing? This entire show I've been playing, um, who are the people that you know from Good Omens? So, yes, (laughs) yeah, you know, yeah. um, Yeah, so the, um, so that both. So this episode was a bonanza. Both families, yeah. right? both couples, is basically David Tennant and his wife Georgia, and Michael Sheen and his partner Anna. Um, and I only know the partners from the show that they did during lockdown, where it was just overstaged. Staged. Yes, right. So you got their partners on that as well. So I don't know if you know, there's a third season of that coming out. Oh, I didn't know. And Neil Gaiman is a guest on of the third course. season. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes. so, so that's how we so, got yeah, this. So it's very much a family project. <laughs> tip, tip for task. Like, you come on this. All right, fine. Yeah. I'll, come on, I'll come on yours. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, then we, and then we have the creator himself. We have Gaiman as the crow. Um, 
And uh, my favorite was uh, Sandra Oh for The Prophet, the Siamese cat. Um, but then also a lot of, uh, a lot of British uh, comedians and television actors were in this as well. Um, and the, the one that I, I kind of knew immediately from the voice was Joe Lysette, who plays the black cat. Um, it's a very London accent. But, uh, but yeah, I, I really liked how the owners looked like the, the, the cast that was voicing them. I felt that that was captured really well. I really like that. I'm I'm definitely getting an idea from this that Gaiman is much more of a cat person than a dog person. Probably. Yeah, actually, thinking back through, it's very much from the perspective of someone who has actually owned cats. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah, they are having these cute little dreams about murdering you in their sleep. <laughs> <laughs> So, so my question about that is, are they, are they remembering back to like saber tiger days or are they just having a fun little dream? Well, I think that's the question really at the heart of the it's episode. An, it, it, so, so I guess if you look at it from the DC universe perspective, uh, there is enough like magic in that, that it could be that the reality was cats ran everything on earth and then that changed. Right? I don't know if that works so well with Sandman in our world that's just a bit weird. Yeah. Um, but I think that's supposed to be the intent, right? Like, what is the difference? Like, our dreams, you know, dreams art can be reality. Dreams can reshape reality. It's kind of uh, a theme. So it could be kind of the, this is the cat's dream of how things should be, and they're just putting up with everything until they can get there kind of thing. Yeah, it's a matter of, well, the thing is, is that their their dreams are being counteracted by our dreams of how the world is, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a matter of the weight of dreams, to, you know, like, it's a magic thing, right? Because ma and magic is a thing in Sandman's universe. Um, and it ties into um, the Corinthian is a dream, and mm -hmm. he invented serial killers. Yes. You know, so, and, and his death yeah. destroyed cr serial killers. Mm. Because we had a conversation about how serial killers existed before the Corinthian um, was launched into the, into the real world. But if reality kind of like goes back and alters reality in the past, like if you create a new reality, um, when, the when the humans became the major species, it didn't just start from the point where it changed it went back and changed the past as well so when the corinthian created created serial killers it also means that serial killers now existed in the past as well i as i read it as it was historical that's that's how it was and the the humans gained enough weight in their dreams to to change reality and then reality shifted and now the cats are like well we can shift it back at some point and this whole idea of what is reality, right? Because Morpheus says to uh, the Siamese that you have to dream it and believe that it was always like this. So that is the power of dreams, that you're not just dreaming for something that you, you're not dreaming for change. You are dreaming that this was how it always was, which is how you have that ripple back effect that overwrites the history, because it's not something that's just happened now and it's changed. It was always this way. But you have to really believe in that. And that kind of ties into the way that 
we tend to think about the world. Um, like people have always been this way. Um, the concept of human nature, right, is largely garbage um, because what we think of as human nature as unchangeable is a product of the culture that we grow up in, right? Um, this was something that really bugs me about people talking about capitalism because capitalism changed the world. Um, or, I mean, it's progression, right? But uh, there is some really interesting stuff in anthropology about how radically different cultures work, but you, if you don't know that, it's really easy to assume that the world that we live in today is normal. It's the way it's always been, and it's impossible to change. Right? Sorry, Axel, you're just kind of blowing my mind because I had a conversation earlier in a very different space um, about religious ethics and morality, and what you're saying is basically what we were talking about. And I'm just like, <laughs> I was in such a different space a few hours ago, and now here I am discussing the Sandman, and yet actually, it's all, it's all one. It's all the same. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> a deeply metaphysical episode, I think. Yes. <laughs> but I was thinking uh, we, it goes back to politics too. Like the the group think thinking one way, whether it's right or wrong or truthful, makes it reality for the group. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I I had not thought of the of this story as being about that of, of about Gaiman making a very strong and profound point about politics, culture, philosophy, um, and wrapping it up in uh, adorable cats. But that is entirely the right way to do things. Hmm. All the best. See, the way I read this cats. was Neil Gaiman really likes cats. And has no illusions that his cats will absolutely eat him. Yeah, that, his cats would eat him given the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One of the things that I took away from it that I thought was really interesting was that Dream has no preference for what species rules the world. He will give the exact same advice to a cat who wants to change the world as he would to a human who wants to change the world. All the same to him. Well, yeah. we don't know how the human prophet was inspired when we get that vision. Very it wouldn't be at all. It would make sense that it would be had exactly the same conversation. Because, yeah, from, I mean, Dream is eternal, endless, and covers the entire universe. Like, the endless all cover the universe. Earth is just one tiny little planet in their existence, right? just happens yeah. to be one these stories are about. Um, so there's no reason for Dream to care about individual species, about the world events. Like, that's not his job, right? His job is to make sure dreams happen and continue to happen, um, and, and, and the universe doesn't break. Uh, along the way, uh, he forms opinions with, of, of individuals. You know, like, he, seem, he, 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 he can like and hate people, like specific people, but at the, the, like, the larger level of, of cultures and species, it would make sense that that's not a meaningful concept to him. Because hmm. a culture doesn't dream. Yeah, I, I want to come back to this point because uh, to me it is when I got to the end of it and I was kind of looking at you know my notes I thought this is an incredibly metaphysical kind of you know exploration of this so let's come back to this point 
But mm-hmm. maybe we'll just go into some, some detail of the episode. <laughs> We've kind of automatically gone into the, into the dissecting of the, the big themes. Um, so we open with with the tenants, I'm calling them the tenants, the tenants and, the, and Tabby. Um, and then we, we get um, what happens um, after the humans go to sleep. Right, and this this little tabby that that gets um, asked out by the the grey cat, and we get the gathering of the prophet, and I also like this whole thing of like the cats all show up, but it's like the curiosity of cats, right? They're all there, you know, because they're just like, oh, something's happening, but then they're like, okay, heard it, moving on to the next thing now, gonna go, you know, find a mouse, mm-hmm. and only a yep. few of them are really, <laughs> but I I love this whole thing of like everyone shows up, and then it's like, oh, okay, meh, moving on. Um, it's very cat-like mm-hmm. to me somehow, right? <laughs> it's like yeah. not really interested yeah. very much. <laughs> pay you a bit of attention now and then, I'll, and then I'll go. And I was really there was one point when uh, the prophets, uh, when the, the Siamese, when I mean when I say the prophet, I mean the Siamese cat, when she shares about her children drowning and how she felt them drown, and you get the grey cat licking the tabby in comfort. You know, just it, mm-hmm. I just thought it was a lovely. Mm-hmm little kind of moment there of comfort while we're hearing this horrific story um and then the prophet's yeah. sharing the sto- sharing what happened and how she prays and I, I i thought it was really interesting that they used the word pray she prayed and she went into her dream and she goes on and then the crow comes and i love this quote i i, I wrote it down so the crow says to the prophet Justice is a delusion. Wisdom has no place here either. But revelation, that is the province of dream. If your heart is strong and you are not afraid. That's just life advice, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Justice is a delusion. <laughs> it's also a really nice bit of framing for the series. Yes. Yeah. Myself, I just want to know when we're going to get equal representation and get the dog episode. <laughs> Okay, well, let's get that hashtag going for Gaiman to notice. Yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> yep. trying to remember if there is a dog, ep, um, like, character in well, there's the entire dog. series. Yeah. Oh, Destruction has a dog. Very cute dog. So there is a dog in your future there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and I think that shows that, that Neil is not focused on one mm. type of pet. Um um, that- I, uh, being a more of a dog person than a cat person, I can say watching that episode, Neil's a cat person. <laughs> <laughs> the bias is coming through. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. And and that's not to say that I do not like cats. I have cats. I just prefer my dogs. And I bet your cats don't care. Your cats don't care whether you prefer them over the dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the point. Is, is oh, the My dogs. cats don't give a crap. My dogs really do give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found the... the scene with the 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 cat babies being drowned really like that that was a really hard part for me to watch yeah oh yeah um, i think anybody with with a conscience that would be a hard scene to watch yeah yeah but like and also like more so than pretty much any kind of like bad thing i find um hard, like tv showing harm to animals way harder to deal with than harm to humans uh, I, I think a lot of people find it that way, and I think it boils down to the innocence factor. Like, if, if mm-hmm. you cause cause harm to another human, well, that's another human. They're flawed. 
They're yeah. full of crap. They they probably deserved it. But you cause harm mm-hmm. to harm to an animal. That animal doesn't know why it's being harmed. It's it's you know it's an innocent and doesn't know why you're doing what you're doing. And and of course that's going to affect us on a deeper level. Yeah, yeah. And also up until very recently, it wasn't possible to do like now CGI can can make can have animals on t- TV and in film look close enough to real. Yeah. That. Um, you can film that and it's okay. Um, I'm reminded of James Bond movie in the volcano. Um, oh, Blofeld, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which was before Hollywood got into uh, making sure no, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Um, Blofeld's holding the cat when the action scene starts, the explosions, the cat freaks out and panics claws at the actor and you can see that it's real painful claws and the cat then proceeded to run and hide under the set and it took like a few days before they could um before they could get the cat out again like um the cat was unharmed at the end and seems to have and recovered from the trauma but like definitely the cat did damage to pete to people along the way and and apparently this was uh, an incident that that pushed for the kind of like the ASPCA being involved in movie making um, to ensure that shit like that didn't happen again. Yeah. Um, if you go back and actually watch that, that movie pay very close attention. Anytime the cat is in Blofeld's arms, mm-hmm. because there are several scenes where it is, you can tell it is just freaking out Yeah, and he is yeah. barely holding it under control. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a part of me wants to watch it, but, Another part also doesn't because I'll be like, ah, oh, exactly what I'm I mean. It, it's to. not, yeah. it's not horrible. It's not like yeah. the cat is being tortured. It's just the cat doesn't want to be in his arms at that particular moment, and he's trying to make it stay yeah. in his arms. And you can tell that that's what's happening. Yeah. So if you ever have, like, you you ever feel like a maybe about watching a James Bond movie, I would suggest listen to an episode of the Kill James Bond podcast first <laughs> because it is an amazingly good deconstruction. Yeah, it's both, it, it's an amazing podcast, um, and that will prepare you really nicely for the watching of it. You'll you'll know what's coming, and you will be able to hate watch it in exactly the right way. Oh, excellent! That's exactly how I'm going to do it. <laughs> were Were you just telling everybody to go to another podcast? <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> yeah. Oops. There are no other podcasts. There is. Only this well, there is the rest of the Watch Party Network, but other than well, that, that's true. I was going to say Watch Party take, taking over all. So coming back to the kittens, uh, which Axel led us into, um, I, I like that you, you you brought up the, you know, the trauma of that moment, because when the prophet's going through the dream, so when the crow says, okay, you know, if you're looking for an answer, you can go to um, the king of dreams, but it's a really long journey. And she's just like, I can, I can do it. And so along the journey, I love this really heartbreaking moment where she's, her children are calling to her in the wood of ghosts. And... But she's so firm in her resolve that she doesn't let them distract her because that would have been she would have then gone off her path, right? And she would have been distracted mm-hmm. by that. And that she just keeps going. And I was just like, oh, there was just that moment of like, oh goodness. And you can hear the mewling in the background, and she's just like carry carries on straight. Which is also very like classic mythic, like classic mythology. Um sticks to the path. And and like uh, her adventure is a really good like um yeah it's a really beautifully done bit piece of myth 
And you get the sense of time, right? Yeah. You know yeah. that she's been going for a really long time and she's forgotten what cold feels like, hot. She just like lost all sensation. And yet she's, she just know she just has that most important thing in her mind and she's forgotten everything else that she just mm -hmm. needs to get there. Yeah. And actually, I like what you say about this kind of the journey because it reminded me of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes. Interesting. Yep. yep. Which we won't go into too much because reasons. Spoilers. And, um, <laughs> but when she arrives at uh, the entrance to the King of Dreams, I love that the, the uh, wyvern, is that how we, how we say it? Wyvern. I've never said it. Wyvern. I've always said wyvern. Yeah. Wyvern. Yeah. Uh, the Pegasus and the Griffin uh, get get voices, right? So they're the, they are the gates to the dreaming and here they are, the actual literal gatekeepers. And I really love that, that they, that they gave them um, lines. And uh, when they, when they question her and she's like, I am a cat. I keep my own counsel. I just thought that sounds like dream, which is probably why they let her in. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> sorry for questioning you. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, you know, cats are a really, really good um, kind of kind of symbolism of of Morpheus. Just in that, yeah, yeah. I have a yeah, right to has, be wherever I want to be. He's very cat-like in a lot of ways, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yes, for sure. He's, he's kind of aloof. He, he kind of thinks he's the center of the world. He likes to just push glasses off the edge of the table randomly. Like, <laughs> yep. Yep. Very dramatic when he doesn't oh get God. what he wants. This is hilarious. Yeah. This is, yes, I love that. <laughs> kind of nudging Jump on you new when you absolutely don't want it. <laughs> yes. Re-envisioning Morpheus. <laughs> well, maybe this is why this is there's a cat episode because actually Morpheus just is big sulky cat um so maybe the cats really did start everything and and morpheus was a cat originally and he mm. became a human when the humans took over yeah. and of course he still remembers that because he knows all realities that have yeah. ever been he doesn't get uh he doesn't get changed because he is endless now it all makes sense to me okay yeah. <laughs> so i think dream is probably the dog in the family no, Dream is the cat. Not sorry, Dream is the cat. I meant to say I think Death is probably the dog in the family. Oh, Death, yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. De Death is very much who are you? I don't care. I love you. Yeah. Okay, we're going to spend the rest of the episode now kind of like thinking about what each endless and what animal they would be. <laughs> for another episode down the road. There we go. Yeah. Oh, I've got an idea for another episode. <laughs> animals on the endless. <laughs> Um, so we have the meeting between Morpheus um, and the cat, and we get the vision of how it used to be. And I, there's a, a kind of shot-for-shot shot parallel here between the cats throwing the humans into the air, playing with them, and then biting them, and then that final shot of the tabby at the end of the episode, where she's doing exactly the same thing. And they're like, oh, she's so cute. And it's like, no, actually, she just snapped you in half there. Um, but, uh, <laughs> So I thought that was a that was a great um, parallel, but yes. um, so then we're back to the to the metaphysics, you know, the the power of story. And what I was really struck by was when Dream says to um, the Siamese that you have to dream it, but dream it so that you've, it's always been this way. And that also struck me. Like I've 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 kind of negative connotations come up for me historically with, with that statement and Axel you know you've talked about cultures where certain mm -hmm. cultures have decided that actually we're going to decide that this is how it always was 
mm-hmm. and then it kind of wipes out the history and the civilizations that perhaps did live there mm-hmm. or still continue to live there. And I, yep. so again, I was just not expecting such a, I mean, it's gaming. I should always expect this, but I'm always really, always pleasantly surprised when things like this come up and it makes your mind go off on all these different, you know, tangents of deep themes and the nature of reality and the nature of humanity and the choices that we make. Um, mm-hmm. Is this story a warning for humans? It's it's almost like an inspirational story. You can change reality if enough of you believe you can. Yeah, it's it, it's like get active, believe believe in something and act on it. You know, um, and you can and we can change the world. See, I thought the the point was if you believe in yourself hard enough, you can bite a human in half. <laughs> Eat the rich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's where we're going, yeah. I'll buy that. <laughs> you know, this is that, that. Yeah, that is in no way uh, contradictory to what I was saying. We were totally in a <laughs> it's just a matter of who you choose to eat. <laughs> um, the revolution will be led by cats. So. Mm-hmm. And you can look at the position of the cats as like they, they are the oppressed underclass compared to the humans who are the ruling class, right? Who have the power of life and death over cats. You know, which is demonstrated. So, yeah, you could totally see this as a political statement, you know. That's the interesting thing about Gaiman's writing is you can you can take it on the surface and, and have this happy cat story and you can go deep into the metaphysics or you can kind of go somewhere in between and, and get a, a reality check, whatever you mm-hmm. want from it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether Gaiman would would completely agree with this but i feel everything he writes is political or maybe that's just because like you know david say says there is always something that you can read into it and apply to what's happening in the times that we're in i am i'm pretty sure he said things to that if like that yeah like everything he writes has has a political message to it yeah i i can definitely see a political message in a lot of the stuff he writes but what strikes me about Gaiman a lot more than that is is like you were saying metaphysical I always see like the the ties to old mythology and old religion and and everything in in what he does um he can't write a story without bringing an old god into it you know Mm. Mm -hmm. but then also this political angle then is that he wrote these you know in the 90s um 2000s and here we are it's still relevant exactly (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> Which comes back to the nature of humanity. We are shit. Um, so tie tie into those scenes with Hob in the uh, tavern where people are ranting about the exact same political yes. issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Five hundred years later. <laughs> so, any fi- uh, final thoughts on this episode before we move on? It's great. Cats rule. I'm going to watch it again after this. I, yep. I <laughs> laugh at the cl- like. I've watched it twice now, and both times I crack up when you know they're saying, "Oh, isn't she cute?" And she's <laughs> dreaming about eating you. <laughs> it's high comedy. I'm I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to hold my sign up and until dogs get equal representation. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm really glad Rosemary's dog survived. I just want to put that out there. Okay. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and with that, I think it's we can head into a break here and we will be back with the other half of this episode. 
I'm here with Siobhan talking about our sponsor, Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. And Siobhan, you found a piece of art that you really enjoy. So I found one that I, I think is really well done. It's a Star Wars piece, and it is a, it's a print with a background of smoke. And you can just make out Darth Vader's silhouette in the darkness. And then there's this slash of red where he's firing up his lightsaber. And just the colors and the design are so striking. Wow, that does sound amazing. And if you want to find amazing art like that for your house, you can check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four, cats with a K, Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. Okay, welcome back from your break. And we're going to go into the second story of the bonus episode, which is Calliope. So I just want to take a moment here and say that you've probably seen the show and the episode and may have read the comic. Uh, so you are aware that it is about sexual abuse and trauma. But I'm also just going to say that again now. It um, Some of the details that we go into might be heavy. I certainly feel it's quite heavy, but important. So I just want to say, if you need to take a break from listening, I'm going to come back. Please do feel free to do so. And um, some of us might need a little breather in between certain things as well. So let's just kind of shout out at any moment. So with that, Calliope. I want to um, share that the director for this episode was Louise Hooper. I think that was quite important. She also did episode 10 too. Um, you can see kind of some of the styles. Um, her style comes across in both episodes. Um, and so we open in August 2018. This episode is set over four years. So August 2018 to August 2022. Um, and immediately the opening lines, we have Richard Maddock and I wanted to read this out because I rewatched it yesterday and it kind of struck me in quite a strong way. So he's giving his lecture and he says, opening words, you can't force a character to do something just because it's easier for you as a writer. Character has to come first. Everything else follows. Oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah. Massive mm -hmm. irony. And I also saw it as not just a character, a person, but also character, right? A person's character, who you are and the decisions that you make. And so this kind of, to me, just summed up beautifully. I mean, just oh, fantastic writing. Any thoughts about this opening? I thought I thought the actor was a great choice because I don't uh, know how it is in um, the UK, but certainly for... North American audiences, we know that actor through Doctor Who, and he's the, yeah. you know, good he's guy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he, a good he's guy. He's an easygoing yeah. character. So to have him cast in this completely different actor, I thought was an incredibly effective choice. He's every man, and he's capable of terrible things. Mm. The other thing I love about Arthur Darville is he also played Rip Hunter in Legends of Tomorrow. Yes. Which, yes. for those who haven't seen it, <laughs> Rip Hunter is Doctor Who. Yeah, Doctor <laughs> Who in the DC universe, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, when when so, he showed up in that role, I I, I lost it. I, I thought it was hilarious, yeah. Yeah, that was what sold me on, on The Legends of Tomorrow as a series, was kind of like, you know, and yes. So is he a good guy in that show as well? Yeah, uh, he, yeah. He's, playing, yeah. he's playing Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, the, the the character is is literally almost exactly Doctor Who. 
he, he's a time traveler that tries to correct wrongs and and is kind of and stole a ship that travels in time and space right F like from the not called the time lords um <laughs> <laughs> The time masters or something. The the Yeah. Yeah. The time it, CEOs. Like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it yeah, and like his costuming includes like a you know, an appropriately long coat. So yeah. it like you can see the the references to David Tennant's doctor in it. Like it's just he's just great. Yeah. And and so yeah, like and he yeah, he's lovely. Um, so having him play this role was a wonderful choice and also kind of ties into Neil Gaiman's like extended, like all my friends are in this. <laughs> um, um, before you move on, I just want to point out in the legends of tomorrow, Mick Rory is the Wookiee. Just, yes. just put it yep. out there. Yeah. Yep. I just want to make a note for Michael and Jen. Let's just extend this to watch party DC. I mean, we're basically doing it. We're basically doing it as, we, as we go through. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm sorry. I am such a DC nerd. No, no, I, I cannot think it's great. help. I, I think it, it's it. great. And, and the Sandman, you know, this show has been the perfect kind of venue, you know, avenue through mm -hmm. exploring all of them yeah. because it is DC and because Gaiman had access to all of these characters to bring them together. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And like, so Doom Patrol. Which kind of I hear a vote in favor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next episode. We we know what we're doing. That scene really sells him as as a, a good guy type character because I got the whole vibe of the Indiana Jones scenes when he's in the classroom also of oh, just yeah, everybody's yeah. just yeah. enthralled and it's this hero that everybody knows and, and they're giving their lecture and everybody's there just to see that person. And so it, it definitely puts a exclamation point on what happens to that character later. Yeah. So I, you know, I thought it was really interesting that they, in the show, they make Maddox more empathetic. Whereas in the comics, he's despicable from the start, right? That they just reserved yes. for, for yeah. Erasmus Fry. And I thought that by making him more imp empathetic, it goes in a really interesting way because there are so many moments where you 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 actually don't know which way he might go, and you're really rooting for him to make the right choice. And t you know, time and time yeah. again, he makes the wrong choice, and it mm -hmm. it's it's uncomfortable to understand why he's doing what he's doing, even though it's horrendous. And I don't they didn't do I didn't get that in the comic as much because it was just like, I mean, actually, full disclosure, I've only read Calliope the comic once. I couldn't go back to it. And yet, having read it 27 years ago, I think, it's the one that has really stayed in my, like, panels of that, of that one issue are kind of embedded in my brain. That's how horrific yes. I found it. And so... Yeah, that was, it was very much the same for me. And yeah. I, I did reread it, and it's very, it's, it's a gut punch. He... Uh, attacks Calliope right on screen in the in the book and he does it as soon as he gets her home so that was actually a point that I very much wanted to bring up is that in the show they drag it out they see him struggling with the choice um and making excuses for himself and you can see that kind of um him trying to convince himself that he's not a bad person, trying to justify what he's doing, and he does it anyway. He's still a terrible person. He still makes the you know the the 
horrendous choice, but it's almost like he has to jump through these hoops first to convince himself that that he can still be a, a good person and do this terrible thing anyway. And you see so many of his other choices very much on screen, things like he has this conversation on the phone about, oh, I want 50% of the cast and crew to be women and people of color. And like, he's, he's still very much propping up his good guy image. And I think that makes it, it's very human. Yeah. I want to come back to the details of, of, what, of exactly what Siobhan said as we go through, but I want to kind of come back to the beginning. Everything that you've just said about the fact that he's presented as like, you know, trying to justify his actions, you know, the complete opposite of that is Erasmus Fry. Like, mm -hmm. at no point, he's completely honest in how despicable he is. He never makes excuses. He's just... Like, I find I find these kind of characters where I I can acknowledge their honesty, but it's in a really... They're, they're doing it in a really horrible way. Like, I find those very difficult and <laughs> challenging characters to kind of watch and kind of dissect. But coming back to the beginning, when... Madek takes the Bezoar, which, by the way, is the first time I think I've actually heard it. Like, I've been reading it since I was very, very young. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's how you pronounce it. When he takes the Bezoar, I thought it was a really interesting analogy between how the Bezoar is another way that men, Erasmus Fry, kings, misuse and abuse what is fundamentally female power for their own gain. Right, this is this is mm -hmm. the Rapunzel syndrome of the, the hair in the stomach and it can be used apparently to cure people and to heal people. But the way we've seen it used is for personal gain. And men men claim this, they you know, through force or manipulation or buying it. I mean, Richard Maddock, he has this young, impressionable wannabe writer who's a medic and he manages to get it through her. And I just thought, I'd, it wasn't again until I watched it last night that I, that symbolism came up for me about the importance of the Bezoar. And so we have Erasmus Fry saying, They say one ought to woo her kind, but I must say, I found force most efficacious. He's beyond horrifying because he chose to rape her because he enjoyed it. He chooses to keep her locked in a dungeon with no basic comfort because he can't bear to look at her. But he also doesn't see her as deserving of good treatment because she's not human. It's her purpose. And he says that she's made for men like us. I really want to delve into this aspect of this horrible human being. Because again, we mentioned you know, in this episode about the political reality of things that Game is writing about and how it's relevant to what's happening right now. There's so much in this that is relevant to the work, work, or the work that I'm doing. The reality of the situation is that for people like Fry, even if she were a human, that wouldn't make any difference. He's, he justifies it by saying she's not human, she's a thing. But people like that treat other humans like things as a matter of course. as why they and use that as the basis of why they're not human right like what he's doing really like you know she's an untermensch she's a slav she's a jew right she's a woman right all of these are you know like we have a whole history i mean she's black 
Yeah, she she's the Italians moving to to New York, and she's the the Irish moving to New York, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Like she 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 is a resource; she can be exploited. Human is a moving justified. target, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And I think that that's kind of I feel like that's kind of the point that he's making, and like, um, Maddox is most people at the begin like. Maddox is like a, your normal, he's your everyman, right? He wants the thing. He thinks he's a good guy. He's trying to do, he wants to do the right things, but it's a whole lot easier. He can get, you know, there's an easy path that gives him what he wants. All he has to do is to lose his humanity. All he has to do is to exploit somebody, right? So he does, and he justifies it, and he excuses himself. And he lies about it in public, but he, you know, but again, isn't that Western culture? Because this is what I find, what I find fascinatingly horrifying. I keep saying horrifying because I can't think, I mean, that's it, it's, it, that's it right? It's the maximum, it's horrifying. Is that for me, it's like he doesn't justify his actions or his greed. And... You know, he says, he says to Calliope, you know, when she's like, you promised, you promised that you would release me. And he's like, mm-hmm. right, writers are liars. And and that's a quote I've I've heard Gaiman use quite a few times. I, I used to I remember I made it in my when I first started working in publishing, I made it part of my signature. And my boss was like, Can you please remove that? And I was like, Oh, I thought it was a really witty thing to say. And I thought, mm, maybe some of the writers that I'm emailing might not like that. <laughs> surely they've all read Gaiman. They understand which from like, what I mean by this. Should they should just... know they're liars. <laughs> yeah, they should know. Do my it. boss was like, yeah, let's just, let's just remove that. And I'm just like, okay. That's me thinking I was being really witty and understanding of writers. But yes. Um and so, you know, he's he's used her. And with even with all that he's achieved, he's now no longer relevant as a writer. His books are out of print, and Calliope can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's now decided to do a new mission, which I don't quite understand. I mean, we can talk about hero maybe when it happens, but I'm not entirely sure. Like he thinks that the Bezoa is going to save him, but he tries to commit suicide and thought it wouldn't happen or, or what? I'm not sure what happened there. I assumed it was an accident that he was testing the powers of the right. Bezoa and that messed makes sense. it up. Yeah. It, it wasn't really clear. Uh, his character, I, I felt a lot of entitlement behind. Oh, more okay. so than... So if there was confusion, like I was talking about... Um, about Richard Maddox, he's the guy who is justifying it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other character and, and was more of an entitlement, right. but I think Maddox develops yeah. an entitlement by the end. Mm. This yeah. is kind of an interesting commentary on how entitlement works, and and sometimes it can be given, or or you just end up with it, and sometimes you kind of develop it along the way. The slippery slope of trying starting to justify your actions when you know they're wrong then you end up blind and entitled. And I just want to say also, I mean, Erasmus Fry, just the worst character ever, wonderfully played by Derek Jacobi. I mean, he's just, he's too good at being horrible and slimy. Yeah, he, he was wonderful in that. And again, another wonderful actor and another Doctor Who actor. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I need to watch him in something positive now, just to get get rid of the image of. Isn't every English actor a Doctor Who actor at some <laughs> I point think we've or said another? This before, haven't we? Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been on TV for so long. Yeah. Everybody ends up on it at some point or another. I don't think I've seen Idris Elba on Doctor Who. Oh, Idris Elba for the next Doctor. Yeah, let's do it. That, that let's was make it touted uh, definitely uh, as 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 a, as a desire anyway. Um, but yeah. The, yeah, the number of actors who have been on Doctor Who, British actors who have been on Doctor Who, it, it, it's a very high percent. It's a very high percentage. Um, yeah. But if, if so you Jacobi, have a, a local theater credit, chances are you've also have the Doctor Who credit. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, someone's done that research out there. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Ooh, that'll be fun. Hold on, hold on. Brian Blessed and Patrick Stewart in the same yes. show. Okay, and, I'm in. Yep. Um, you, you had me there. You had, no, that's yeah, it. and I could go on. Like, the number of amazing <laughs> British actors in it is a lot. So what I'm, what I'm hearing yeah. you say, Axel, is watch party I, Claudius. Okay. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Taking over the world. Yeah. Yes. So my final um, coming back to this, my final thought of this uh, this uh, initial scene was, um, what did hypothetical question here because answers could be quite horrendous. What did Fry do to Calliope to be in quotes particularly proud of Here Comes a Candle? It's the book Calliope leaves in the room at the end for Nora to find, and it's the one that he wants brought back into print. And I just, it just struck me on the rewatch that there's quite an emphasis there when Fry kind of looks at Calliope and she kind of looks at, looks at him over her shoulder of some significance to this book. And yeah, it was just a thought I had. I wonder. I just assumed it was the first one he wrote after capturing her. Maybe the best as well, perhaps. Yeah. We can assume there's a, a downfall after the first. Yeah, I, I got the feeling it it, it really works like uh, um, drug addiction. Mm. You know, that first, the first hit hits is, the strongest. is the strongest. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that makes sense. And after a and, while, you're just taking the hits just to feel normal, you know? And, and also possibly, like, the first time it happens to her, Calliope thinks if I give him what he wants yes. he'll let me go yeah so she puts all her oomph into the first book and then after that she realizes it's my life now and the He's books get go. yeah less and less inspired as time goes on mm. she becomes more and more resigned so at the end of this you know what a part of me was thinking okay maddox now taken ownership of calliope and there's this whole you know kind of period of time where you're thinking Dude, like, realize that she's saying if you free her, she'll give you everything you want, you know? You can be her savior. You can be the one that releases her from everything that she's gone through. And there is... And he tries to bribe her with perfume. Yeah. 
like, yeah. really? And, like, <laughs> and, it, and it looked like cheap perfume as well. I'm sorry. I don't know. Oh, actually, maybe should not, not say that. I don't even know what the bottle is. It might be some designer brand. I don't know about perfume. <clears throat> if it's a big bottle, it's cheap. Okay. It was a, it was <laughs> a big, big kind of flashy bottle. At, uh, but, but there is this, like, just this, you know, period where you're thinking, and she keeps saying to him, you know, like, ask me again when I'm free. And you're just like, it's right there, you know, do do the right thing. But then, as one of you was saying earlier, then, you know, then it, it, he has this conversation with his agent and he justifies it to himself. And before we get to the moment, there's the bit where he's, he's on, scrolling social media and in the background, the television is playing. And I kind of listened to it a few times. It's it's something about, I felt like it was something about abuse. I don't know if any of you watched it in that detail that you picked up, but there was something playing on the television. And it seemed to, to me, it seemed to be something about abuse. And I picked up on it because I just felt that there was all this background stuff that was happening in every line. There was so much to it. Everything is tied in somehow in this episode. Now I got to go back and look for that because I missed it. Yes, yeah, Siobhan, have a look and and... and Tell me later if you could figure out if it was a show or if it was like, you know, some kind of documentary, but it seemed to be talking about abuse. And I have this quote from Calliope where he's presenting the perfume and chocolates and clothing. Um, and he's like, you know, I don't, is this how you do it? And she's like, you know, you know how it's done. And she says, an artist prays to the muses. He offers vows of service and devotion to the goddesses in exchange for divine inspiration. An artist does not hold a muse against her will. And I just thought, you know, is this what Homer did? Because Fry says that she, Calliope, used to be Homer's muse. This is the way, once upon a time, where it was. It was done correctly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, would, that was kind of the point, right? Like, back in, back in the day, all of your great Greek storytellers, all of your great Greek artists um, had a muse, right? And they, had, they wooed their muse, muse like, you know, they, they, they worshipped their muse. Their muse gave them the inspiration to create great art. That's, yeah. Um, but we, ha you know, like, cap I mean, um, uh, you know, capitalism just says, like, fucking get on with it. Just, you don't need to do that. Exploitation is way faster and easier than caring about, you know, the world, about the environment, right? Um, so, again, very grabbable as policy, you know, as a political... But uh... it kind of harkens forward to uh, one of the later scenes where she's calling to the mothers, I believe it is, and, and they kind of come down and tell her that all of the old gods don't exist anymore. The old way is gone, and so that means you have to fall beholden to the um, what's left. And, oh, and dream to, ends up being her only option. Or connecting to American gods. This is the age of the gods of exploitation rather than the gods of inspiration. Yeah. 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 And, you know, in this moment, he, he dares to compare himself to her imprisonment. By saying, you know, like, I'm not free either. 
and I just thought this is like the the delusion, right? He's really falling now for his delusions and his justifications, in that he can dare to compare himself in that way to her. He's well, he's I, I, he's building the story that he doesn't have any choice. Yeah, because that way he doesn't feel guilty, right? What he's you know he is he's working to assuage he did his what guilt. He had to do. Yeah. yeah, he's doing what he he's just a normal guy doing what he has to do to get by, which again I think is a very that's very that's very human. That is very normal. Right? Like um we're good like we're good at it. You know, at at, justif at justifying about, you know, cognitive dissonance. Um you know, like we live in a world where that has to be done and I think that like Neil, like the reason that Neil Gaiman makes the changes to Maddox for the TV series is like that's a sign of him having, you know, being older, being more mature, having figured out that that is a much better, it's a much truer story. It's much more human, mm. right? Like monsters are rare. There are very few people who perceive themselves as monsters or and are comfortable doing monstrous things. Um, I am reminded of um, a book. Of, of Tadeusz Borowski, who was a Polish um, poet and author who um, and socialist who was uh, who was at Auschwitz. Um, he was a capo there, um, or he was a he he survived it because he worked. Um, the, he wrote a book of, of of his time there called "This Way to the Gas, Ladies and Gentlemen." In the beginning, in his introduction to it, there's a quote which I unfortunately can't find online essentially it comes down to um people start off horrified at having to do terrible things but they do it because they have to first you do it because you have to and then you normalize that and then you do it because it's routine and then eventually you enjoy it mm. right and because that was and that, that came from his experiences at Auschwitz at seeing his you know his co-workers because um, you know he was he, he, part of his job was to dig was digging the grave was digging graves to bury the the remains or whatever, you know, and seeing that in the guards like people are right you know you're at first doing the horrible thing is really hard and you don't want to do it but the more you do it you normalize it because you've got to otherwise you'll go crazy and you normalize you know and it becomes normal for long enough and then you're going to start to enjoy it because again we're wired to enjoy the things that we do all the time because if you didn't you'd go mad and so potentially we see uh, you know erasmus is the end of that process you know he may well have started off like maddox but you know he's been doing it for you know 50 years or whatever and so now he has to now he enjoys it because that's the way he's always thought of it because that he's thought you know he's been living that for so long Right, Maddox is at the beginning. Maddox will end up like Erasmus. Maybe. Yeah, I think that that was kind of. I definitely saw it that way. That this is, you know, Maddox was the beginning, and and you know, Fry was also like that. And this is his trajectory if Morpheus hadn't intervened. And then speaking of changes, you know, this is what I deeply appreciated about this episode, which was my least favorite comic panel and has potentially become my most favorite screen you know show story were the changes that Gaiman made for this and one of them is the next sequence 
where Madoc goes to Calliope. And I was reading about it. Um, so this is where the director, Louise Hooper, was talking about how important it was that they framed this in the right way and to the level of kind of camera angles. So Calliope is always kind of at eye level, right? There's no kind of looking down at her. Um, and the framing of her and Maddox, um on screen as well, it's very, very consciously done. At this level of detail, I think, is really important when you are portraying such a horrific thing that somebody who may not have experienced this or somebody who has experienced this and is going through a process of understanding and coming to terms and continuing living their life, these are all ways that you understand it's not your fault, you weren't complicit, and the power that you have within you, you, you can always keep hold of that. And with Calliope, which is very different for me from the comics, that she she always, whenever she's on screen, the, her power is emanating from her. And the the actress was fantastic. I love the fact that they cast a Greek actress as well, um, Melisanthi Mahut. She's absolutely fantastic. But I just think she has now become like if I was to think of a Greek muse, that's that's who I would I would picture in my mind. She just kind of embodies it so well, and. So all these things that they've done, you know, kind of, I had an inkling of it as I was watching it because I was able to watch it, right? It's not like anything else that's been done before on television where it's gratuitous and it's all for the shock value and there's no understanding of the people involved from a writing, directing, you know, perspective of what's going on. And so this next panel, I just have girl fucking men. And then when I went back to it, <laughs> I thought I should probably put some other words into that as well the power of not seeing it on screen and then the really disturbing distortion that increases as Maddox so the, the framing is on the on the on the screen right his his lack mm. of writing and you hear him going up the stairs and this distortion is increasing and increasing and then the power in naming her right there's a there's a power in naming things as well as we know from you know fairy tales and Rumpelstiltskin, because he owns her. I thought that was like I had I had to pause at that point because <laughs> it was really quite um, overwhelming. All these elements coming together in such a intentionally sensitive and aware manner that is still very difficult to watch, and yet. For me, it's the most, I, I just think the fact that I could watch it, for me, says a lot that it, of how well it was done. And it, and it's still incredibly powerful, even though they don't show anything on screen. Like you see the next shot, he's at his typewriter and he's typing away and he's got that cut on his face. Mm. And you know exactly mm -hmm. what happened. If you've never read the comic book, it's still very, very clear. And I thought it was just amazingly well, well shot. Like just the way it was handled was perfect. And the fact that she's clothed throughout, right? They yeah. afford her the dignity yeah. of her, of what she, you know, of her just as a as a human being, a goddess, whatever, yeah. right? I have to say, I I really appreciated that. Um, I tend to have a hard time with with 
depictions of sexual violence in in media it it's something i just don't deal with very well and you know i didn't even enjoy this on any level it it still disturbed me but it was nice to not have the graphic mm-hmm. depiction of that happening and and i i think part of that is um the director um making that choice and yeah, it it was it was it was still just as powerful without having to be graphic. Very much reminds of the um, the washing scene with Egwene. Yeah, back yeah, in the exactly. Time. Yeah, there you have a scene that's very violent but not gratuitous. I think um, I read somewhere that Gaiman had acknowledged how this story needed a lot of changes to be mm-hmm. able to go out and be relevant. Um, for the time that we're in now, and again, I really yeah. appreciate the fact that he he's humble enough and honest enough to be able to say that, because to me, that's the mark of a good a good writer, a good well, you know, talking about sexual violence now versus talking about sexual violence thirty years ago is is two entirely different conversations. So, but not every but not every writer will acknowledge that. There are shows That's that true, are doing yeah. exactly what was written thirty years ago, and nobody's—they're not thinking. Oh, maybe we should—we should reconsider this. I don't Game of Thrones. <clears throat> I didn't want to say it, but um, <laughs> so then we have Calliope calling on the mothers, as David mentioned earlier, and I was thinking, it's the nicest we've ever seen them on screen. <laughs> oh, no doubt, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like a softer version and the most real too. They can't help her, but they tell her that Morpheus might have. But he's also trapped. So then we kind of get this kind of, we understand the timelines of where everything is, um, which becomes important later. They mention Orpheus, and all I will say is dun, dun, dun. And then moving on. So two years pass, and uh, Maddock has reinvented himself as uh, pretentious Rick Maddock. And uh, beware feminist writers, everyone. Being an outward ally, ally of women and people of, co- of colour, and as Siobhan was saying, you know, requiring the studio to announce casting publicly so they can't back out. And um, so we saw that scene and I looked over at Axel and said, do you think Neil Gaiman has a woman trapped in his attic? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I want to get Gaiman on the podcast. Edit that out, Ruach. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's something to be said about Amanda Palmer there. Um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely an Amanda Palmer joke that we should not make there. Let's, let's just, uh, yeah. But no, what you were saying earlier, I was, I, what, what you were saying earlier, I was definitely thinking of uh, a certain Joss Whedon. Name yeah, 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 that's the mentioned. very mm-hmm. obvious yeah. name. Well, I would like to come back to that person at the end of this episode and see if anyone agrees with me. But moving on. Um, mm-hmm. so Maddox, Which is something so comical about a feminist male writer. But the, li- the line where he says, oh, yeah, you know, I know it's not, you know, it's not, you're not meant to say that a man can write better than a woman, but I am a feminist writer. It's like oh, such great irony. Grr, smash. Um, 
And and then we see how far into his delusion that he is when he's talking to Calliope about the success of this of this book that's going to be turned into a film. And he's like, you know, can you not allow yourself to enjoy our success? It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> really? Our success? And this is where I really see, yep, here he is. This is Erasmus Fry, you know, 2.0. Yeah, like he is still very much justifying. He is a good guy. He's doing good things. He isn't bad. You know, it's just that, in order to do the good that you know to 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 be a good feminist author and to 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 cre you know to create space for for people etc etc he just has to keep you know a woman locked up in his house it's a minor thing but for the greater good yeah clearly his skills are really fucked up i was going to say that definitely goes into the the dehumanization that you were talking about earlier you know he 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 no longer sees her as human and sees this as her her purpose but he also still wants to justify her as like his partner in this, right? She is a contributor. It's not like she, he is still seeing her as somewhat of a person. But, but really irritated that she won't kind of join in. Yeah. Why, why won't you, you know, why can't you enjoy our success? Like, this is not just about me, right? Like, you're part of this too. It's just in order for you to be part of this, I have to keep you locked up in a room, you know? Um, and a, again, a difference between the ancient Greeks version and, and this one is they were always willing to acknowledge that the muse was where it came from. Yeah. That it was the muse yeah. causing it, not them necessarily. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So a sense of kind of this move toward individualism almost, right? And the ego mm -hmm. yeah. is prominent. That it's yeah. I story. am the only one yeah. that does anything. Yeah. Well, this, this kind of hissy fit that he has um, then does allow Calliope to see in the newspaper that the sleepers have awoken. So she now knows that Morpheus is free. And he goes off on his phone and she's able to, for the first time since arriving into the house, she's able to leave her room and sneak downstairs. And I just thought, you know, fantastic acting. That just moment where she enters the front room and she kind of looks and you realise that she's she's... This is all new to her, right? Because she's never seen downstairs. And then she writes, um, she makes a supplication to Morpheus and Maddox catches her. And the pounding increases. So again, right, this pounding, the, the music. Mm -hmm. And he says, you're mine by law. And I was like, what fucking, oh, sorry, again, my notes are all capitals. What fucking law, fucking men and their fucking laws. What the fuck? So... That's my intelligent um, articulation of what happened there for me. Yeah, and again, very much like yeah, the law is that it's okay for people for one person to own another person, which is and that like it's a it's a magical law, right? Like because he has her her token, but that's still created by Zeus, who is a man, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because those yeah. would be the Greek laws. It's it's a law of. Uh, that that she has to live under but it's not like a law of nature like it's not yeah. um i mean the very last scene she says i'm going to change the laws so this never happens to anybody else this is not an immutable yeah but it's also the picking and choosing right so those who have who have power and privilege get to choose which laws they wish to abide mm -hmm. by in the moment yes because it it benefits them and so he's yep. like oh well this is the law it's not me i have to keep you and rape you because it's the law. Um, mm -hmm. Again, a justification of his actions, a way in which he's not responsible for the bad things. He is just another 
he's just another person doing what he has to do. Yeah, and actually, yeah, really appreciating the 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 analogy that you made earlier, Axel, about the you know the the camps, the concentration camps. Yeah, completely. This is the same thing happening again. Yeah. yeah. And then we have Fry with the um, being interviewed. And I just thought it was really interesting, right? When he's asked about his inspiration, he cites female writers as inspiration. But the canny journalist is able to just immediately say, well, actually, I was seeing more of Erasmus Fry. You know, it's like he's he refuses to have any association. And actually, he's but he is he is Erasmus Fry 2.0. And that's when we find mm-hmm. out it's the late Erasmus Fry. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, that's become my headcanon now, Siobhan, your, your theory and what he was trying to do there testing it and it all went wrong and then we have the people were thinking when is he going to turn up and here we have morpheus arriving and brilliant shot just in the house yeah it's like she's you know clive he's looking out the window and we just hear kind of like a slight bad whoosh and she's like you came and he says you called i just thought it was lovely and also Mm -hmm. again highlighting how much morpheus has changed at this point where Calliope's like, you know, you, you've suffered. And he says, my suffering was nothing compared to yours. Like, that made me tear up, actually, every time I've watched it. Because um, it, it's showing his growth. And Calliope is able to see it immediately. Like, she knows him really well, right? He's, he's her, mm-hmm. was her husband, still is her husband. They had a child together. And this is now, like, the real... <laughs> This is the real difficulty for me. I'm a very vengeful person. Has that not come across already? <laughs> right? And it's, um, it's, it's, Calliope points out that no punishment can give her back what was taken. And she points out that once Dream felt that he owned her. You know, like, is it because you, she says, you know, is it because of your sense of ownership that you feel like you're going to punish him now? But he's like, no, it's because he hurt you. And again, this is like, oh, you've changed. But the fact that Calliope is able to look at the bigger picture, I mean, she is, you know, kind of immortal in a sense, but still, yeah, I don't think I could do that. I I can't do that. But I'm not a goddess, so thankfully. It never really occurred to me before, but like very much part of the Sandman story is about how Morpheus changes and how often it's observed by other characters around him, how much he's changed from his imprisonment. So it's like um, Maddox and uh, Morpheus are kind of traveling in opposite directions. Things that Morpheus goes through makes him more compassionate. Whereas whenever Maddox is in a tight spot, he becomes less empathic and more of a terrible person because um you know being imprisoned for 50 years could turn you into an absolute asshole (laughs) that's the kind of thing that could very much negatively impact your personality and with morpheus it does the opposite as it does with john Mm. d oh well john d goes crazy (laughs) (laughs) so it's not it's not a con necessarily a conscious choice but it, it very much feels like Morpheus made the conscious choice to be a better person because of his experiences. But Axel, are you comparing John Dee with Calliope? As in like two versions of what happens when you're... And, and Morpheus. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like, because all three of like, because John D is imprisoned yes. for most of his life, mm. right? And like, and in solitary confinement, by the looks of it. And maybe and had some kind of um, what would what would now be seen as uh, inappropriate medical intervention to try and fix his mind. I imagine no, stuff like that happened both, too. Both physically and by the ruby, right? Because he was kind of confined by the ruby as well during that period. And, and like solitary confinement wrecks human psychology. Like it is... Yeah. It will drive you back. Yeah. So like I think John D's output, it, you know, like who John D became is really understandable, you know, in... in in context, and yeah, like Morpheus, you know, I mean, Morpheus and Calliope, they are both immortals. Um, they are not human, so their experience of imprisonment is going to be different from a human's. Um, conceptually, although I think for the purposes of narrative, the point is, it's still, it, you know, it's terrible. It, they learn. Well, Morpheus does say, time Morpheus does, just because we're it. immortal doesn't mean time travels any di yeah. passes any differently. Mm. We still yeah. experience the same passage of time. So he was. Yeah. Still had the same experience being locked up for 50 years. But he's not human, so he isn't going to feel... Like, he does not feel things exactly the same way a person does. Like, yeah. how that works is different, and I think from the purposes of the narrative, we can assume that they feel... They, you know, they're close enough to humans that we can treat them that way. But, like, like I mean, Morpheus should have been crazy when he got out because he spent, like, 70 years in solitary confinement. Or 106 in the show. Uh, 106 sorry i yeah. a light more than a Extended lifetime it. right like yeah yeah so the fact that he isn't like that when he gets out is a sign that he is because he is endless but you know also, and, and like the endless kind is of like yeah this added element to it as well which is because they're not humans you know they they have these functions these powers mm -hmm. that you know dreams is being abused people are sleeping and not waking up calliope's mm -hmm power is being you know leached off her forcibly mm -hmm. um and neither of them have control over that whereas as a human being potentially you don't have any magical powers actually john d had yep. you know had the ruby but yeah it's an interesting want to delve into another episode perhaps um so we, <laughs> we can keep going forever this, we could this is so yeah, yeah I'm, i mean i love this i love the fact that we're connecting it back to other stories and characters in in the first season um so yeah maybe definitely an overview one at some point yeah. So then we have um, coming towards the end, we get um, Calliope asks, you know, Dream, what are you going to do? Like, you know, she's like, don't hurt him. Can you just inspire him to let me go? And he's like, I'll do that and more. And so we have the great um, scene between Maddox finally meeting Dream. And again, just wonderfully shot the whole, like the camera level, how Dream never raises his voice and yet is incredibly menacing. And then when he stands up, you know, like you kind of get the sense of like darkness, like Gandalf and his darkness behind happening. And he says, you know, if it's ideas you want, then you shall have them in abundance. And the ideas come. And so we end up just as we started the, the episode back with Maddock in the lecture theatre. And this is where I had the question. Is Gaiman making a reference to Whedon? Because... The opening reading that Maddox is, is talking about for one of his books is Fireflies Flicking, Fading in the Night. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and I wondered if anybody else had caught that because it just came to me. I was like, hmm. 
Because you're right. You know, I think it was Ruark that said this. Nice the, I, reference. Whedon did come to mind during this episode. And then at the end, I, I just picked up on this and I was like, hmm. I find it very unlikely that Gaiman would have had that in the script if it was not intentional. Um, and Whedon tracks to Maddox in, yeah. like, they're solid, the parallels are solid. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think that he did. That's a question to ask uh, Neil when we get him on the show, okay? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we can break the big Hollywood news about a beef between (laughs) Neil Gaiman and Joss Whedon. That that will be exciting. I don't think it's a beef. I think it's a clear winner, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just just calling him out in a way that, uh, that, 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 that others have. I just thought, if it is that, it's very clever and, again, very clear, right? That, yeah, like you say, this this is Maddox. Yep. So the idea is take his blood, literally. He's now desperate to, you know, get rid of them and he's, let me get that scene with um, Nora, the medic, again. Um, really liking to see Amita Suman again. She's in... Um, What's that other show, the magic show, where they all look like they're wearing the different colours of the Aja? Oh. Oh. Yeah, that one. Skin and bone or whatever, flesh and bone. Something like that. Skin and bone. (laughs) Bone and smoke. Uh, uh, Shadow and bone. Shadow and bone. Shadow and bone, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she's in that, and I I was like, oh, yeah, nice to see her again. Um, And I thought, you know, an interesting... Again, Whedon, you know, this um, impressionable young writer has her idol crash, you know, because he's like, there's a woman locked up in my house. You must go and release her. And she's just like, what? This is bad. And also you've like, you know, written with your bloody stumps all over the wall here. There's something not right going on. And she goes to the house and she finds, you know, obviously Calliope's already been freed as soon as um Maddox says the words she's free so she Nora arrives and finds his empty room and Fry's popular well is the one the book that he was most proud of on the floor which I thought was full circle back to who they had become so we have the final scene of the episode and for me this really sums up I I feel like I've kind of fallen back in love with Gaiman purely because his willingness to adapt and change in how he handled everything in this episode and here as well. He basically rewrites his own canon, his own law, by having Calliope change her laws and dream saying that he'll do the same too. Right? This is all this is all new from the comic. Is correct me if I'm wrong, Siobhan. It, yeah. Yeah. And you know Dream asks Calliope what she'll do and how she'll do it. And she says, by inspiring humanity to want better for themselves and each other, by rewriting the laws by which I was held, laws that were written long ago in which my sisters and I had no say. For me, that's, this is the most powerful section of the entire show and why I'm able to go back and watch it again and again. Because, like the main themes of all of Sandman, 
it's about change, but it's about hope and how you can make those changes for a more hopeful future. And Calliope can still show compassion and asks Morpheus to let Maddox go. And he loses it. And in that final scene between Maddox and Nora, you know, he, he, he's lost all his thoughts. But we do get him saying, I have no idea. And that they were all hers, the ideas and stories. They were all hers, but he can't remember her anymore. So he ends up losing in all the ways that actually mattered to him because all he cared about was getting the stories. And had he released her, she would have given them to him willingly. And more. She would have given him more. And Yeah. And so he lost everything. And then we end on a kind of a, a moment of loss where we get this acknowledgement of Morpheus and Clypey lost their son and she asks, you know, I'd like to see you to grieve our son, but he's still not ready. And again, I just felt that, that was such a human acknowledgement of grief that some people, everyone does it in their own way and Calliope's done it and she'd like to do it now with her husband, but he's not quite there yet. And the fact that that's acknowledged and respected. You get the, you, you don't see their, their history, but you get the sense that this is a much more gentle parting than the last one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that they couldn't talk about this in the past, but that this shared experience has now allowed them to move forward. And now she can say that she's ready and he can tell her in converse that he's not. And that was something that they couldn't communicate to one another previously. And when you say shared experience, I immediately think of their imprisonment. Like not just the fact that he saved her. Yes. That both of them were imprisoned, both of them were changed because of it. Yeah. That's me, folks. Oh. That was a tough episode. That is that is a hard episode. Yeah. It was hard to watch. Yeah. Very much yes. so. Even even with all the on screen changes, just you know, the whole the whole theme. But overall, as a season, it was actually still very difficult to watch at times. But <laughs> but it was very well done television. Um, I I loved it. Having not read the the comics beforehand, I I found it fascinating. I loved all the stories. I'm not sure if I'm going to go back and read all the comics now, or if I want to go into this into season two blind. So it's kind of a reverse of how you usually do things where, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the rest of us don't know what's coming and yeah, <laughs> yeah. keep her That's the kind lore. of why I'm thinking I'll, I'll stick with it. And, I'm kind uh, of the same way. In, in that vein, I think it's time for us to uh, announce something exciting. Uh, we are going to be spinning the Sandman episodes off into its own podcast. Uh, we're going to start a, a Neil Gaiman-centric watch party podcast and spin these Sandman episodes off as the first episodes of that and be able to follow Sandman further in the future and, and look into some other Neil Gaiman works like, uh, good omens and American gods maybe. And, and, uh, yeah. So look forward to that. Watch parties literally taking over the world. Yes, we are <laughs> one franchise at a time. <laughs> And with that, I think we want to say thank you to our benefactors, Michael and Jen, out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Say thank you to Michael and Jen. Thank, hey, thank you, Michael, thank and Jen. Jen. Michael and Jen. 
And of course, if you want to get in contact with us, you can get all of that information at whatwatchparty.com where you'll find links to our Twitter, our Discord, our Instagram, and uh, some Facebook groups and a few other things. I don't know, maybe a recipe or two, something. I don't know. There's, there's all kinds of links happening over there. And also links to our fundraiser for Koala Sedai to help her with her koala preserve down in, in Australia. So uh, be sure to check that out, whatwatchparty.com, whatwatchparty at gmail.com if you want to send us a mailbag, and uh, at whatwatchparty on Instagram and Twitter. And final question for the panel. Since Watch Party is expanding to take over the world, what do you want to cover? Well, you all know I'm going to cover the whole Trek universe (laughs) because it's just ever growing and it's all awesome. You know, I've just started watching Ted Lasso and I'm really like, oh, yes, through the first two seasons. Cannot wait for the third one. So I'm going to say feel good, wholesome show. Watch Party Ted Lasso. Yes. Just makes you feel good. Yeah, uh, I want to cover um, Bruce Campbell, his works. Ooh. Oh, oh, the the collected works of <laughs> Bruce Campbell. Yes. Not, yes. Not <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, starting with Evil Dead, moving through like Xena and Hercules into <gasps> Evil Dead, Zena. Bubba Hotep, right? Like um, the Briscoe County Junior. Um, oh, done, I forgot Briscoe County. Yeah, right. Every Spider-Man movie. Uh, that Sam Raimi directs, basically everything that Sam Raimi directs. Yeah. You know? All, the, all of the it, uh, sci-fi random episodes that he's in. Right, The Man with a Screaming Brain, uh, for, as an example. The the terrible, terrible, cheesy-ass, wonderful movies that he makes. He has covers so much. <laughs> and what a chin. Now we're getting into his books. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so for my answer, Ruark and I actually already talked about this. I would really love to do uh, Severance. Oh. Because yes. it is one of the creepiest shows I have ever seen. There's nothing, um, there's no gore, like there's nothing explicitly horrifying, but it is. It, it's creepy and stylized. Yeah. Is this the one like, where they like don't, that, they, they're only at work and they don't remember? Yeah. Right. Okay, so so Daniel and I had decided to watch that. So well, I can join that that one if you do it. <laughs> <laughs>